All right, well, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, got a full 45 minutes in here. Wow, that's, uh, that's good. Good to be uh, back with you, uh, only, if only for a brief period of time. Um, leaving, I think, on the 19th, yeah, for uh, Berlin. And then the, uh, the list of places is going to be interesting. I got to remember to, uh, I think I have to upgrade my phone so I have enough room for the pictures. Uh, but uh, Worms and Wartburg and uh, Erfurt and, uh, of course, Wittenberg and all over Germany. Um, the fellow who uh, organizes these, uh, these things, he had just gotten back from Germany and he was like, ah. Oh, you can't get the Germans to do anything for you. It's just always, no, we can't do that. No, we can't do that. And I said, I'll tell you what, when we're over there, I'll try to grease the skids with a little bit of German because uh, my friend doesn't speak any German. And I happen to know the Germans don't like it when you come to Germany and you just demand. That they all speak English, but they don't like when you don't even try uh, to, uh, to speak, uh, speak any German. They don't care if you stumble all over yourself. And uh, they recognize that. If you don't live in Germany, you'll never. There, it's der die oder das. Uh, they have they have uh, masculine, feminine, and neuter pronouns. At least for now, who knows when that that's going to change? I mean, um, that would totally mess up everything. But uh, all German uh, nouns have uh, gender, and uh, so foreigners just mess that up because if you're unless you're using it or reading it regularly, you just can't remember. And uh, so I'm sure that, especially on that level, I really destroy things. But I can, I can communicate. So uh, I'm going to try to sort of help things out a little bit along those lines. Maybe we can get a little more, a little more cooperation. But I did discover that uh, at Worms, uh, where Luther, of course, had the here I stand, I can do no other speech, uh, as little as two years ago, you had to clear leaves out of the way to find the plaque in the open field where that is, because that building's gone. Well, last year they installed, believe it or not, a big pair of open shoes you can stand in. So it's, it's literally, they're, they're uh, like brass shoes, so you can stand where Luther stood. And you can have pictures, you can stick your feet in and stand. It's like, OK, uh, whatever you say. Uh, weird stuff, weird stuff. Uh, but I'm still looking forward to that, though I will not have any pictures taken of me standing in, in Luther's very large shoes, because I think that would look really silly. But anyway, so uh, that's what we got coming up. So we need to press on. Uh, we, I believe, had looked at purgatory last time. Does that sound about right? OK, all right. So. Uh, and I, did we talk a little bit just basically about the fall of Rome? That was my next time note was the rise and fall of Rome. And then well, not the rise. We, we'd have to go back way, way back for the, for the rise of Rome. But the fall of Rome, I'd already mentioned to you the, the date 410, uh, which is a date you want to know. Um, August 24th, if anyone is, you know, wants to put that on your calendar, you, know, you can amaze your friends at work by saying, you know, on this date. 410 A.D., uh, Alaric the Visigoth sacked Rome. And they'll look at you like, you're very strange, which you probably are anyways. 
Um, but he left 13 days later, sort of just a, you know, he's just a visitor, you know, just, just came to, you know, check out the pools and stuff like that. Uh, the city itself was not seriously damaged by his visit. Uh, in 451 to 453, Attila the Hun. Yes, you've heard of Attila the Hun. And it was not someone he used to work for either. Attila the Hun uh, invaded Italy, 451 to 453. And 455, the Vandals overran Rome. And you can imagine why we use the term vandalism. <laughs> probably means the vandals were, were not really builders. They were, they were more destroyers than anything else. And uh, finally, in 476, the traditional date of the end of the Western Roman Empire, Romulus Augustulus was deposed by the bar uh, barbarian king Odoacer, O-D-O-A-C-E-R, and so that's pretty much it. So from 410 to 476, it's a period of time. You have to write it. No, I don't, because Kelly's not here. Oh, fair enough. Okay. Kelly's, Kelly had to work today. Uh, so uh, that means I'm under no particularly <laughs> impressive pressure uh, to write on the, on the board. But uh, uh, since, since, you, since you asked, uh, and that was 476. The de deposition of the final uh, leader of the Western Roman Empire. When I say Western Roman Empire, Constantinople still stands, and it's the eastern seat. And it, of course, it had been the seat of power for quite some time at this point anyways. But the West has now, has now declined. Now, what was the impact of the fall of Rome? Uh, we have often spoken of the great benefit of what was called the Pax Romana. Uh, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Uh, it, it does seem that uh, if you wanted the gospel to go out in the fastest, widest way it could, uh, this was a particularly uh, providentially blessed time uh, in the first century for that to happen. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of trade. Uh, the Roman Empire holds sway from, from Britain uh, to, all the way into you know, North Africa and into the Middle East. And so there is a tremendous amount of travel and ability to communicate, to send letters, uh, things such as this. But once that ends, you end up with petty uh, little kingdoms, fiefdoms, lots of little wars uh, going on, and uh, travel becomes something that is extremely difficult. Trade plummets. Uh, trade plummets. As I've mentioned to you, by the time we get into the heart of the medieval period, the average person in the medieval world never moved more than seven miles from the place of their birth. Therefore, the world became a very small place for the vast majority of people as well as, obviously, uh, your knowledge of other places would uh, diminish uh, commensurately. Uh, population centers, cities, began to decline due to lack of trade. This ended up leading to feudalism, uh, to where you have the little feudal lord living up in his castle, and he's got maybe some knights, and he's got um, serfs working the land for him, and uh, 
that's about all there is to it. Uh, not much room for things like universities and education, literacy, uh, things like that. Uh, but, but cities, obviously, as we know, uh, require trade and uh, the ability to bring food in. You know, uh, if, if you can't have agriculture in certain areas and then the food from that agriculture being brought into the cities, you can't have cities. And uh, all you had to do was watch a few episodes of The Walking Dead to realize that. I mean, uh, that's pretty simple. Uh, but uh, it is a reality in history uh, as well. And so once, you don't, once the cities begin to become depopulated, uh, then you don't have a basis for uh, universities, education. You don't have markets for uh, works of literature and literacy in the same way that you do at other times so on and so forth. Uh, on international politics, you have splintering and factions. You no longer have a unified uh, governmental system, and so you, be, you begin to get um, uh, much more in the, in the way, of, not even of nation states. Um, you, you just have little petty kingdoms that are very, very small and that tend to war often with those, uh, with those around them, even though these would be small, relatively small battles, not the huge types of things we would think of. Uh, so this eventually leads to what is called feudalism. Feudalism was based upon land ownership. Uh, the landowner was a king if he owned lots of land, a lord if he owned a smaller amount. Uh, in England, he would be called an earl, followed by knights. Uh, these were the protectors. The producers were the serfs. The producers were the serfs. The priests were the prayers. Uh, so you've got, uh, you've got protectors, producers, and prayers. Uh, the knights, the serfs, and the priests. Uh, this resulted in a very rigid class system that was hierarchical in nature. You knew who your master was. There was very little social mobility. It would be very rare for a serf to be able to ever have the opportunity of moving up. Um, you, could, you, you could move down, but it was next to impossible to move up. Um, you know, tragedy or disease or things like that could cause you to go downward, uh, but upward, not, uh, not, not, not really a, much of an, an opportunity. And this is going to uh, prevail in Europe uh, for a very long period of time, for centuries uh, on end after the fall of the, uh, the Roman Empire. And of course, an education decline in literacy in education, Roman schools had been excellent. They had taught the seven liberal arts, including rhetoric, music, history, mathematics. And we tend to forget this, and I was reminded of this. I may get a chance to mention this a little bit later on in the class. But um, to this day, it remains a, a major thing, but especially up through the Renaissance, um, astrology. Uh, was extremely uh, prevalent, even amongst Christians. And there's different forms, obviously. And the, the distinction that we make between astrology and astronomy, uh, you know, uh, we have astrophysicists and things like that, and, and we have high-powered instruments by which we scan the heavens. And I think it's interesting, we who live in cities, we rarely look upward anymore because the light pollution, you know, you, you get to see Jupiter and Saturn and Mars and Venus once in a while. And just a couple, just a matter of weeks ago, we 
on a Wednesday night, I mentioned that I had seen online that uh, the space station was going to be going right over Phoenix at like 8.06 or something like that. And we went outside and watched it very clearly, <laughs> go right, right across there. Just, uh, it was moving. And, uh, but generally, until you get out of the city, there ain't much to look at. Uh, it's just sort of a bland, yellowish sky. Uh, you get out of the city with light pollution. Wow, there's a lot out there. It's gorgeous. And so man spent a lot of time you know, looking up at that because he didn't have any electric lights to sort of mess things up. And so there's a tremendous amount of astrology and a, st a study of the conjunction of the planets. And, and uh, uh, you'll find liberal references to astrological conjunctions and things like that in papal pronouncements and stuff. It was uh, just very much a part of, um, of human, human thought. Uh, but there is a decline, uh, obviously. You know, the Roman schools ceased to exist. And so monastic schools rose in importance. The monastery becomes a center of what's left of education. Uh, they taught Latin, though most monks knew little of such things as geometry or anything like that. Uh, soon clerical literacy declined as well. Since they couldn't exegete the scriptures any longer, the sermon shrank down to a 10-minute homily. Uh, I remember uh, Brother Broyles uh, once after a sermon, uh, Pastor Fry had gone a little short one day. And uh, so uh, Brother Broyles uh, came over and said, well, I just want to remind you of what we heard once. He says, uh, sermonettes make for Christianettes. <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, uh, the sermon uh, shrinks down to about a 10-minute homily, and this uh, resulted in a great rise in bringing in teaching aids into the church, like statues, frescoes, pictures, and of course the, uh, the stained glass windows of so many uh, medieval churches that we would see uh, were a part of the, the reality that... Uh, in many instances, 95% of the people in the church couldn't read a book, but they could look at a window. And so it was a matter of, you know, you'll see these windows, you'll have the 12 apostles. So in other words, picture books, you know. Uh, if, you, if you can't read the book, uh, you know, I'm reminded Wednesday night, uh, we were talking with... Uh, with uh, the good uh, doctor historian uh, who's going to be publishing a, uh, hopefully publishing a book. And Pastor Fry said, is that, is that on the, the same topic you gave me a paper on that I couldn't read? And he said, well, similarly, it might, it, might be, uh, it might be a little bit easier for the layperson to read. And Pastor Fry said, will it have pictures? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, Brother, Brother Bart said, yes, it will. And Pastor Fry was like, yes, great. Well, there you go. There is an illustration of why we ended up with... Uh, with uh, stained glass windows with um, all sorts of stories being told in them as they were literally a, a means of, um, of teaching. Now, uh, I don't have this in my notes. I'm going to have to add it in. Uh, these notes are very, very, very old. Not like history has changed much. But um, I am uh, attempting uh, to uh, do a little more you know, fresh study after you know, many years um, in preparation for 
next couple of weeks in Germany, I want, you know, I'm going to be asked to be speaking in a lot of different places. And, and so one of, the, uh, one of the things that I've always recognized was a, a very important element to the rise of the Reformation, and uh, hence I wanted to do some extra study on it, was uh, the Black Plague. Uh, it was never the Black Death. It, was, it wasn't called that at the time. At the time, it was called the Great Mortality. Uh, or just the plague, the great mortality. And uh, the bubonic plague, as we would describe it today. And so I've been reading I've about, about a book and a half so far, a uh, book and a quarter on, uh, on the subject. And it's <laughs> wonderfully depressing and at times rather disgusting in its uh, descriptions of things. But especially when you come to discover something. Little, little side note here. Little side note here. Probably not one of the things you expected to learn in Sunday school this morning. but. Uh, um, theology matters. Some people say that once in a while. And, and uh, uh, we've seen a degradation in the Christian theology of the body, male and female relationships, family, marriage. We've seen tradition, the monastic tradition. Remember the... Remember the, uh, the, the Desert Fathers, we talked about the Pillar Saints, we talked about people that would you know, allow bugs to crawl through their teeth to demonstrate how godly they were and stuff like that. Well, um, this resulted in a perspective in Western European society uh, that, well, let's put it this way. One of the... Uh, the great saintly aspects. We're going to look at the mystics later on that arose, especially during the medieval period. And you probably have heard of Catherine of Siena. Uh, one of the, the, the great evidences of Catherine's uh, sainthood and godliness uh, was the fact that she lived her entire life without ever bathing. Because while in the East, Muslims had an emphasis upon ritual purification and hence bathing, uh, in medieval Europe, uh, it was not uncommon for a person in medieval Europe to go a year without changing their clothes. Because bathing was considered to be immodest. So... <laughs> We're all sitting here going, I don't even want to think about that. No, no, don't even want to think about that. I, I personally am exceptionally thankful for something called deodorant. I think, I think that's a one, especially when you're in an in a, uh, elevator, a lift. Uh, that's, that's just such a wonderful thing. And I'm glad I didn't, no, I'm glad I didn't live back then. But all, what, what does all this have to do with anything? Well, the plague. Um, the conditions were ripe for the plague, especially in cities. Uh, most cities, Rome had developed aqueducts and, and indoor plumbing. Uh, but after the decline of Rome, uh, most of the cities that, that began to arise uh, after the turn of the millennium, uh, when around 1100, uh, we had a, an uptick in temperatures. We, we know this historically. This is something that historians have known for a long, long time. Al Gore just haven't, hasn't gotten this, this hint yet, but, but he 
he has a Nobel Prize anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, but historically, around 1100, the temperature started to rise. And places, even in, in Greenland, that had never been plowed or used before, were, began to be used for production of food. And, and in England and things like that, you, you know, we find places, there are even names in England that go back this time period that refer to vineyards, which even today cannot be used for growing those things. It's too, it's too cold. But they had in the past. You can tell by the pictures. You can tell by the, the artwork and the names. They, and there was a tremendous increase in human population because all of a sudden you grow more food, more food, more people. Well, that resulted in more cities, but these cities were not as advanced as they had been during the Roman period. And even into modern period, um, you've ever heard, have you ever heard the phrase, look out below? You know where it came from? Uh, yeah, some people do, some people don't. You may not want to find out where it came from, but you're going to find out about now. Uh, it came from the fact that if you lived on an upper floor of a building in a city, you had something called a chamber pot because you didn't have a toilet. And you know how you got empty your chamber pot? You threw it in the street. Not the pot, what was in it, you threw it in the street. And so you had to repeat three times in a row. Look out below, look out below, look out below, then you checked it out the window. Um, that's, can you imagine what cities smelled like? Because you not only had that, then you had the animals and you know, the horses going up and down and, and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, modern sanitary conditions and things like that just didn't, uh, didn't exist. And hence gave uh, tremendous uh, grounds for uh, disease and things, uh, things like that. One of the reasons that uh, human life expectancy was considerably shorter during this period of time than it would be uh, today. Well, what's interesting is uh, most people know that the plague struck Europe starting in late 1347 extending through 1350, so about two and a half years uh, time period, really 1348 especially, uh, 48 into 49, tapering out in 50. We'll talk about this more later on. The numbers are interesting as to the argumentation. Uh, historically, it has been said that one out of every three people died. A lot of modern studies that have been based upon actually examining the records of uh, the time as far as uh, burials and uh, tax records, things like that, suggests that some places it was, it was as high as two-thirds. Uh, and in some cities, 75%. Many people thought it was the end of the world. It'd be pretty, if Hal Lindsey had been around back then, it would have been real easy to tie everything together. And that this is it, you know, uh, all the plagues, the, the dark, anything from the book of Revelation did get used. Uh, during this time period as an explanation for what was, uh, what was going on. But what, and most people know that while it disappeared for a while, it would, it would come back in smaller waves. Uh, all the way through, uh, the, the plague struck in um, Strasbourg in 1530, 37, 38, 39. I'd have to look. It was when Calvin was there. He'd been kicked out of Geneva. And he risked his life to minister to the parishioners in the French congregation there where he was pastor before he was called back to Geneva. We'll look at that later on in, in, in Calvin's life. But uh, so uh, there, there was a large uh, spate of the plague in, in, uh, starting in the late 1800s. 
so it's, it's come and gone, but the big one that, that reshaped European culture, uh, late 1347 to uh, 1350. But what most people don't realize, is I'm not skipping that far ahead, is that there's pretty clear evidence that the plague had hit Europe before that, specifically right around the time period we are right now, and that was around 540. Um, the plague hit Europe. Uh, it was devastating. However, because the population, the, the, for, for a plague like that to, to maintain itself, there has to be enough people. Um, the, the, the fleas on the rats, the, the specific carrier was ratus ratus, which is why we call them rats. That's it's a specific genus and species, ratus ratus. Um, uh, once the, they wipe out the rats, then they, they don't like human blood, but it's better than nothing. And when all the rats are gone, you, you go for humans. And then once the human population gets thinned out, it, it can't continue. And so it doesn't seem to have been as devastating uh, simply because there weren't as many people as there would be in the 1300s. Uh, but still, it was a, you're still talking about mortality rates that are just unbelievable. Uh, the different forms of the plague, and it's hard for us to look back and know exactly which form it was, but we, we know the bubonic plague um, would have a, a mortality rate around 70%. The pneumonic form, which infected the lungs, 98 to 100. Uh, some people just say there's absolutely no evidence that anyone ever survived that. And then if you were bitten by an infected animal, 100% uh, and within 12 hours. Wow. I mean, just boom, unbelievable. Uh, so you can, you can understand how the stories of God's wrath, you know, uh, just even looking, you know, a lot of people said if you just looked an infected person in the eye, you would die. Uh, well, you know, when you, when you don't know the mechanisms, it's easy to understand that. Somewhere around this time period, around 540, uh, the plague strikes in, uh, in Europe. Uh, I, don't have, I, ha I don't have any evidence that it struck in, in you know, where else it, it struck, but there was some evidence in, in Europe. So it had hit before, uh, but the, the true uh, striking would, would be coming from uh, at another, another period of time. And uh, so it, it's, it's just a reminder to us that until modern period, until the modern period, very, very modern period, I mean, the past 40 years, uh, mankind has been, well, 60 years, mankind has just been surrounded by death regularly. And we need to remember, how many millions of people died in World War II? You know, that generation is just now passing away, but you're talking worldwide 65 million? Um, when uh, there, there was an American professor that, that created a, a scale of human death events, and World War II is number one uh, in, in mankind's history. Number two is the Black Death uh, from the 1300s. Um, and then I think World War I after that, because the casualties there were just unbelievable. Um, but it, 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 I think one of the explanations for a shift in the theological outlook of even evangelicals is due to the fact that we are so uh, isolated from and protected from the presence of death around us. Um, 
justification by faith is not nearly as an exciting thing to people who have put all thought of mortality and judgment far away from their everyday thinking. Far away from their everyday thinking. It's not going to happen to me until I'm old and ready for it. And so you don't think about the need of having peace with God and being right with God and the basis of that. And it has an impact. Uh, I, I comment many times. I was speaking at a, in a church in South London uh, two weeks ago, less than two weeks ago. Well, last weekend. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was actually a week ago yesterday. And, um, uh, you know, I, I made the comment then where we were talking about Reformation issues. And I said, we could have filled this place up if we would have talked about prophecy or Christian finances or something like that. But there's a reason why people are not nearly as focused upon the importance of these things. And a lot of it has to do with what's, uh, what's gone on around us. There's no, there's no question about it. So it is fascinating to keep that in mind. And of course, we will pick up uh, the issue of uh, uh, the Black Death and uh, things like that as we, uh, as we move on during this, uh, this time period. We still have things to cover between now and then. Now, it is interesting to me to look at my notes that I developed in teaching church history coming up on 30 years ago now, and to look at the section on the rise of Islam. Uh, obviously, uh, it is a subject that I've now written a fairly lengthy book on, and that was just simply on on the Quran, though I use the Quran as an introduction to all of Islamic theology. Um, but given the interactions I've been having since, well, my, my first debate with a Muslim was in 1999, but I have often said that I, I do not consider that my first Islamic debate. I was simply defending the Trinity. I had not yet begun my studies of Islam in 1999. My first Islamic debate was in 2006 at Bioli University in in California with uh, Shabir Ali. But I've now done more debates with Muslims than any other group. Uh, Roman Catholics are second on that, that list for a long time. I figured they'd always be number one. Well, uh, that's, that's not the case any, any longer, but there's a, it's fairly close. Uh, it's fairly close, though the Muslims are, are taking a substantial lead now. But um, uh, obviously, in the time period, you know, in looking at what was given to me uh, as a student, and, I, and again, I, I had a wonderful church history professor and, and uh, uh, very thankful for that, uh, that introduction that I, that I got, but still, uh, there was, the material was accurate, but it was brief, and there wasn't a whole lot of discussion of the real impact, uh, you know, the very last point of the whole outline was that Islam had a great impact upon the Christian church, but there really wasn't much discussion of exactly how, how that worked. Um, and I can understand why. Uh, this was, you know, initially I think I took my first church history class in seminary somewhere around 1986, I would say. Um, and Islam just wasn't a world-changing subject in 1986. 
people looking forward who had a keen eye of future events were probably seeing that things were, things were changing. Um, but the global jihad and um, the rise of groups such as Al-Qaeda or Boko Haram or um, any of these other groups, ISIS, was yet future and, uh, and the, the, the soil of that was not yet clearly able to be seen. Um, and so many generations of Christians have lived and died and not given much thought to Islam outside of it being um, a missions field. And of course there have been many missionaries sent out by good reformed churches to Muslim lands. But when Islam was basically a backwater religion, um, having had, uh, there was a, a period of tremendous Islamic predominance and a very high culture uh, with tremendous emphasis upon science and art, not the drawing of people, but geometric art, science, mathematics, philosophy, a man named Avros. Um, that culture was actually brought down by the form of Islam that we struggle with globally today uh, that tends to be destructive rather than constructive. And so it went into this period of great decline and though it had been during uh, Luther's day. Did you know Luther believed in two antichrists? We'll get to this later on, but he believed in two antichrists. The spiritual antichrist was, was the Bishop of Rome. The physical antichrist were the Muslims, the Turks, uh, because the Ottoman Empire was spreading westward and, and uh, there was great, uh, great danger. Uh, they were knocking on the gates of Vienna and if Vienna had fallen, uh, there was such, again, uh, disunity uh, in Europe itself that coming up with a unified fighting force against this unified Muslim force was very difficult. And one of the, one of the things we'll discover, uh, one of the reasons of opposition to the uh, Reformation and especially to the Anabaptists were the Turks because the Christians who held these positions were seen as traitors against the state and hence they were assisting the Turks in the destruction of Europe. So the politics were all there. But uh, those empires, especially after World War I, had, uh, had collapsed. Uh, the last caliph uh, had been deposed after World War I and, and Islam seemed to be on the decline uh, as just a cultural artifact. Uh, well, as we know, that's, that's no longer no longer the case, uh, even though uh, one might argue about what the state of health of the Islamic faith is in the world uh, today. Um, so it, it is interesting to look at the relatively small amount of, of uh, information that was given uh, in 1986, and it's a function of where we were then, and uh, who, who knew that 15 years later, in 2001, uh, all of that was going to uh, was going to change in a um, in one amazing morning as we as I would imagine everybody almost everybody in here 
uh, can recall. I'm looking at some of the younger people and starting to realize, oh my goodness, there are actually, there are actually people that don't remember September 11th uh, that are getting, getting close to the age of majority. Uh, it won't be long. It's hard, it's hard for those of us that can remember so clearly. Uh, you know, it's, it was the guy who organizes, who's organized our, 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 our trip uh, in a couple of weeks was the one who called me from Florida. And he said, are you watching this? And I'm like, watching what? Uh, and I turned on the, the TV and um, started joining everybody else. And that was the first day of, uh, of classes. I was, uh, that was the one year I taught at, at Grace Christian School, right before it closed. And I was teaching high school, high school Bible. And I remember going in there that day and saying to those young people, you have no idea but your lives changed radically this morning. You have no idea how much your lives will change because of what happened today. And what's interesting is one of the problem students I had in that class, and he was a problem student, um, now is a multiple tour uh, bomb disposal expert with the Marines. And uh, he has reminded me of what I said that morning. And uh, has said, I remember you saying that. And man, looking back now, you were spot on. Uh, you were spot on. Uh, and, it's, and it's true. And uh, he's proof that God's grace can do anything. <laughs> he and Josh are good friends. Josh isn't here to hear all this, but it's been neat to keep in touch with him over the years. And, and uh, he's a good guy. Um, anyway. Uh, so, the rise of Islam. <sighs> there are people today, uh, and there's different ways of spelling Muhammad, uh, sometimes with an O, etc., etc. Uh, but basically, 570 to 632 are the dates that are assigned to Muhammad. Um, there are people today who have published books questioning the very existence of a historical figure named Muhammad. Uh, there is, uh, for example, uh, a theory that is, has gained some traction. There, there's definitely interesting elements to it. I am a person uh, who believes very strongly that we need to be very, very careful in the argumentation we use against someone else. Any arguments we use against someone else must be consistent with the arguments we use in defense of our own faith. And so I'm not one of those people that is uh, easily impressed by the most radically skeptical arguments that are out there against Islam or Mormonism or whatever else it might be. I think you need to be very careful at that point. There are people who do not believe Muhammad as an individual existed, um, nor that, that Islam originated in what is now called Mecca. Um, they point out that there are, and there are, uh, some rather serious questions about the description of Mecca in the Quran and modern Mecca. And they actually argue and they have their, they've got some very interesting 
factual argumentation, um, I don't think that the Muslims have taken this seriously enough yet. Um, but they, they argue that when you look at a number of the early mosques and what's called the Qibla, uh, the, the Qibla is um, the architectural structure that points you toward, it's where you're supposed to pray towards. So if you, if you go over here on I-17 uh, to the large mosque that has been built right along I-17, what is it, between Northern and Glendale, or Glendale and Bethany, I forget where it is, but somewhere along there. Um, if you look at the structure, you will find that it has a Qibla, and the Qibla will be pointing the shortest direction to Mecca. And so everything in the mosque, in the place of prayer, will be oriented so that when you bow down, you're facing toward uh, the Kaaba in the great mosque in Mecca. Well, people point out that some of the earliest Islamic structures are not pointed at Mecca. They're not even pointed at Jerusalem. Uh, they're pointed at a place called Petra. And when you look at Petra and you read the Quran, the geographic stuff lines up. It's a fascinating theory. It's a fascinating theory. Uh, if that were the case, it would, it would cast a lot of doubt on the idea that there was an actual historical individual named Muhammad. Um, but the problem is, so much of this stuff remains extremely theoretical. And the vast majority of Muslims with you're going to be dealing have a very fixed historical understanding of who Muhammad was. And so in general, I deal with what they are talking about because you can make a very strong argument regarding the inconsistencies of Muhammad's teachings with that of the Bible. Um, but at the same time, I obviously think that some of this uh, material is quite fascinating. We just have to be very consistent and uh, not rush things. We can't do what we did with the alleged uh, Markan fragments a few years ago, going back to the first century of the Gospel of Mark. That hasn't panned out, and some people jumped the gun on that. Well, I think you need to be very careful with some of this material uh, as well. And so, assuming that there was someone named Muhammad, and, and given that there are volumes of stories about Muhammad, what Muhammad said and did, called the Hadith, uh, the Hadith literature, um, and when I say volumes, um, the Sunni, We'll talk about these divisions later on. But the Sunni have their hadith. The Shia have theirs. The Shia hadith are really weird. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest with you. The Sunni hadith takes much more of what we would consider a historical uh, nature or flavor to it. Uh, but when I say volumes, the, the two most, most authoritative collections of hadith uh, are those, and these are collected 300 years after Muhammad, uh, but are those of what's called uh, Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. Sahih means sound. So these are the sound narrations of Hadith uh, by Muslim and Bukhari. And uh, those are eight and nine volumes, uh, respectively, containing thousands of individual Hadith. Many of them are repetitive, but still containing thousands of 
of Hadith, there are six sets, sets of uh, Sunan Abu Dawood and some others of the Hadith uh, that it's difficult for me to read all of that. I've, I've read all of Bukhari and Muslim and major portions of Jamiat Termini and Sunan Abu Dawood and things like that. Spent a lot of time on this. Um, it's difficult for me to, to think that all of these different stories all go back to pure mythology. Uh, there's so many different directions in which they've come. And yeah, they, they, they're clearly oral stories that have been passed down over time. It's possible, but it just seems a little bit of a stretch to me uh, that there wasn't someone named Muhammad. Now, there's obviously great expansion, and yeah, there's obviously stuff in there that Muhammad never said or did. That's, that's clear. But um, it just seems to me that it's rather difficult to come up with the idea that there never was a guy named, uh, named Muhammad. So what we'll do next time that we get together is we'll look at the Islamic view of uh, Muhammad, their story of his life, um, and then look at the expansion of Islam. I'm not going to have time to go into all the theology and things like that. We could spend way, way too much time. I'm going to try to stay primarily on the historical aspects. Uh, but do need to make some application, uh, I think, in light of how uh, important Islam has come, become in our, in our modern world. But we'll, we'll pick up with Muhammad uh, on uh, the next time, which will be next week. I am here for a few weeks. Yay. Uh, so let's, uh, let's close our time with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for the freedom we've had to consider uh, the history of your work in this world. And once again, Lord, we ask that you would help us to remember that we might have a solid foundation, not only to be thankful for all you've done, but also as we look forward to recognize that we are a part of this great work and that we should uh, seek the wisdom of those who've come before us, learn from their mistakes as well as from their successes. Be with us now as we go into worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.